Welcome to RSP Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman, Russ Landy. It's always a pleasure to get a chance to do this today. We're going to talk about how teams get start, you know, get started with a lot of their roster building and some things that you know, some of the things that scouts are doing right now, um, and what this is a really a perfect time for Russ, as well as maybe some talk about NFL teams and and some other scouting developments and and ideas as we go along. So, you know. Welcome aboard. It's always great. Oh, there's nothing I enjoy more than our podcast. Um, the chance to talk ball with someone I respect is awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a crazy time of year. This is really where those teams, in my opinion, and it's not always all the teams that are well-run, but a lot of the really well-run teams sort of take advantage of this time of year and sort of say, okay, how are we going to sort of maximize building our roster for the future without really sacrificing much now. And, and a perfect example, yesterday the Rams had two players, Ben Skoranek and somebody else, who had strained caps, and they said they're out for the year. So likelihood is they're probably out a week or two. But what do the Rams do? They IR'd them because it gives them a roster spot. And what that gives you at this time of the year is it gives you flexibility. You can either add guys from your PR and then add two more guys off the street to your PR, or – you can go sign two guys off another team's PR because to sign a player off a of PR, you have to immediately put them on your active roster for three weeks. So that's one of the rules in the league. So what the smart teams do this time of year is they identify, hey, who are the guys we, we can afford to either not have by putting them on IR or not have because we can just cut them because we realize they're not going to be part of the team next year, even if they're winning, and get rid of them and sign players off of other teams' practice squads. And yesterday, just looking at the waivers yesterday, I think there were four players signed by teams of other teams' practice squads, which nice. is uncommon in, in one day. Usually in a week, you'll get maybe one guy signed off another team's practice squad because usually as soon as you contact them, they'll tell their team, and their team will say, okay, we'll activate you, we'll put you up, we'll give you the more money, whatever. But the fact that these teams are doing it, they're not saying, hey, think about it. They're saying, come now. We're signing you now. If you're not willing to commit right this moment and sign the papers, we're moving on because they don't want you going back to your team and get promoted. They want to steal you. And it's a great way. Even I mean, and the Rams are a perfect example. We know they're not winning this year. We that obviously, but Les is a very smart GM and he's saying, Hey, these two receivers, they're going to be here next year. And they're not going to really make a fit. If we put them on IR, let's get some roster spaces open and let's get some guys on here. And I think smart teams are always looking at ways to not only add good players, but how do you take them from other teams? Yeah. I mean, if you can take a guy that, and I'm sure there are many guys you've scouted over the years in RSP and tons of guys I've seen that you look at and say, well, this guy's two years away. He needs two years on the PR. Well, he just spent a year on another team's PR getting paid by them. And all you have to do is sign him for three games. You stick him on the end of your roster. He doesn't really do anything on game day. And that means for the next year you've got him, one year of his development is over. He may not need another year. He may be ready to make your 53. So this is really the time where smart teams are able to, and they can't all do it just because of roster situations sometimes. But it's a chance to really get better. And there are some teams that just get lazy this time of year. They do not realize the importance of not losing valuable members of that practice roster. And, so, and it, I understand the veteran guys on the PR that you have there for practice and maybe activation. You may not care about activating a 32-year-old because he's not going to be a long-term guy. But a guy that's 23 or 24 that you have a belief could be a guy in the future, 
You can't let those guys out of your building at this point in the year, no matter how bad you are. You have to activate it. You have to find a way, even if you have to cut some veterans or injured some guys, because you can't lose good players, especially if you're a bad team. Yeah, that makes sense. So so tell me about some of these players that, say, get added to a roster like the Rams this time of year, and what's going on with them, say, between now and, say, the NFL draft? What benefit do they have with being on a roster um, during that stage besides some of the playing time and exposure that they might get? Well, a few things. Firstly, anytime a team is willing to sign you off a PR, in general, it means there's a legitimate interest there. They're not just signing you to fill a spot. If they were just filling a spot, they'd promote the receiver that's on their PR because every team pretty much has one player at almost every position on their PR. So it means, hey, this is a team that at some point, whether it was in college or maybe in preseason games, had a good grade on you. And they view you as a guy that can develop. And what it really does is you may, as a player, say you're with the Bengals and you're on their PR, and you've been there all year, you came out of school the year before, and you're thinking, you know, I've been here a while, I've seen some other guys, the Bengals have promoted to the active roster. I'm wondering if they really view me as a guy that's got a chance here, or am I just filling a spot? Whereas you see another team come and get you and you say, okay, they're going to give me three active roster game checks. And that's going to basically qualify me at this point. It's going to get me games towards being vested to getting a pension because the more games you're on the 53, the closer you get to being a pension player. And additionally, when you get in there, you get the playbook. And if you're going to a stable building like the Rams, you're getting their playbook and you're getting a head start. Whereas if you go on the, if you stay with the, say, like I said, the Bengals, practice squad expires in December, the end of the year. Teams start signing guys in February that were expired practice squad guys. Maybe you actually get your playbook late February, early March. You've missed three months of getting up to speed. Right now you're getting time on the practice field. You're meeting with the coaches. You're building those relationships so that in January and February, when you're away from the team, if you're even if you're in the building and you're going to work out there every day, you can be communicating with the coaches. You've got a, a relationship already to where you're building on where you're at now, as opposed to sort of almost like just treading water until you get an opportunity in the spring. So there's a huge advantage, in my opinion, for the player and for the team, because the team also gets a close look. And they and this is unfortunately could be a negative. They may look at it for three weeks and say, wow, we were wrong. Right. This kid is not good enough. We're going to, at the end of the season, we're not going to keep him. We're going to not tender him. We'll let him be a free agent. But if you're a player, you have to bet on yourself. If you're not willing to bet that you think you're good enough and can prove it to people, then you probably aren't good enough to be in the league. You have to have that confidence. So I love doing it. I've always thought it's a great way to improve your team. And I also, it's funny because in the CFL, I've heard so many people talk about, well, it's sort of, it goes against the unwritten rule of not stealing players, signing people off other teams' practice rosters. And I thought, what are we talking about, unwritten rule? I mean, there are nine teams in the CFL. Aren't we all worried about one thing, which is winning a great cup? What am I worried about unwritten rule? If I can go get a good player that they have on the practice roster, what do I care about some unwritten rule? Let's go get them. But it, it's, it's unique in the CFL that there's almost no poaching off other teams' practice rosters. That's fascinating. And, and given in the, in the CFL, the player has the option, like the team can say, no, we're, we're, we're going to keep them. But a player in the CFL can decline staying on a practice squad. Okay. 
So you can literally just call up a kid's agent and say, hey, we're really interested in your kid. How about he tells the team he no longer wants to be on the practice roster? And even though that may be, quote unquote, tampering, all of a sudden he's off the practice roster the next week and you guys sign him. Interesting. So there, and, and nobody really does the stealing of PR guys. And I've always wondered why wouldn't you? Now, I know like in the XFL and the USFL, I'm sure they have rules about it because they don't want to get in bidding wars and raise the dollar amounts in a startup league. But for the NFL and CFL, to me, it's a no-brainer. It's like these are literally free players sitting there that if you had high grades on, why wouldn't you steal them with a few weeks left in the season? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. It's fascinating how that works and the differences with that. And I would think, too, that some of these, you know, on top of that, a player gets in. Are veterans, you know, during the offseason, do you find that there are veterans on NFL rosters who are around the facility all offseason or from, you know, February? And so they get a chance to interact with them and learn from them. Because as we know, a lot of, you know, as we've talked about this year, that was kind of eye-opening was the whole idea of veterans who kind of use their who may be on one-year contracts who are at the end of their career going, listen, kid, you know, let me game you. You know, I'm going to game you a little bit to keep my roster spot if you're if you're a threat to me. But there are guys, as we know, who, who are also very helpful. And I would imagine during that time of the year, they can be a tremendous resource of like, hey, I'm watching you, you could be really good. You know, work on these things. These are things I had to learn, you know, that kind of stuff. A hundred percent. And I would say, and I know we joked about it last time with how some of the veterans know how to play the game and get inside the, the young guys' heads to keep yeah. the rush. But I would still say the majority of veterans are very helpful to the young guys. Yeah. Because they look back and remember guys that helped them out. I mean, I know there are guys every year where there's a veteran who has been in the league six, seven years, has established himself, is doing well financially. And the young kid finishes the year on the PR and wants to stay involved and wants to be there, but his home is Alabama as opposed to Pittsburgh. And I've seen situations where the veterans like, hey, I know I got a family or whatever, but we got a guest house or guest room. You come stay here. You're going to be in, in, go with me every day. We're going to be in the facility. We're going to go to meetings. Or or some of those young guys will all say, hey, we want to stay here. And the team will help them find like a low price, say four-bedroom place that four players can split and boom, all of them can be in the facility every day because I'm telling you, being in the facility every day, working out in the weight room, working with the trainers, the strength coaches, all those things, not only do you get better as a player, but it's about relationships. And anybody who thinks personal relationships do not affect how the roster is constructed on cutdown day are out of their mind. Yeah, because if I you're a coach you, and you see that kid there from like February every day grinding, that's an added layer. How do you not? Yeah. Yep. I mean, that. you just think about it. if you're if you have an undrafted free agent who's coming in and, and, and is a good kid and and does what you tell him, but he's not that guy that comes in extra. He shows up. He does exactly what he's told. He's a nice kid. And then you have the kid that since literally the end of last season has been in every day, hasn't not not stuff he's assigned. He's just taking it upon himself. He's there every day watching extra film with the veteran guys that come in. He's working out. He's coming to you with questions and. For six months before training camp, he's literally increasing his football IQ every day because he's trying to grind. That's going to, you're going to be like, well, I'd rather have that guy if we have to choose between either last man on the roster or even last man on the PR. It does affect it. So 
the ability, and that's why I really think there's value. And if you have a chance as a player, the team comes to you and says, we want to activate you on our, we're going to bring you to our team, steal you from the Titans and put you on our on our active roster for the last three or four weeks of the season. It tells you there's something there in terms of their liking you. And if you go there and you go above and beyond, it gives you a great opportunity in worst case to stick on their PR next year in the best case to make their 53. So to me, there's almost no negative to jumping because the reality is if you jump and you handle it the right way, the team you're leaving understands yeah. and they understand it's a business. And all of a sudden, if you get cut and the other team t- tries to PR you, the team you left may still try to come get you on the PR because they did like you and you handled it the right way when you left. So it, there's almost a no lose situation to me. That's where the smart teams separate themselves. They really attack this time of year finding PR guys, and also finding guys that, hey, these are guys that have been on and off practice rosters. They're not on a roster right now. There's three weeks left in the season. You start talking to them, and I think the date's coming up, and it may have already passed. No, I think it comes up in a few weeks, where you can sign guys to futures deals. And that's where recruiting comes in. You may have a kid, literally, that you convince, hey, don't sit around and wait for a chance to sign with a team with a week left in the season to maybe be in the playoffs, come with us. We're going to sign you to a futures contract, and we're going to give you 10000 up front. And oh. you may get a few guys like that that have been on and off PRs this year. Maybe they've only received, say, six weeks of PR money, and they're sitting there saying, oh, I should wait. Maybe a team's going to sign me to the PR the last week or during the playoffs. And you convince them, hey, no, sign with us on a futures deal. We'll give you a little bit of money up front and try to hoard some really good players that are out there. And this is where you can really, you can make some, especially make upgrades on special teams. You find those two or three guys that are great special teams players that maybe they're having trouble finding a home as a receiver or a linebacker. Get them in now and really get them knee deep in your teams. Get get them to where they have a chance to earn a roster spot just on teams and then help them in the other areas. So this is where to me, smart teams have, a, if they're, and this is what I think like the Eagles, the Patriots, the Steelers, have done a great job of over the years is finding guys this time of year for next year. Not that they're helping you now. They're not going to help you in the playoff run. They're going to help you really in 2024 probably yeah. or 2025. But you're thinking about it now. I've seen some good – I've certainly seen some good rec- receivers, running backs, linebackers who have gotten their start in a sense, their foothold by being futures players. Um, they started to get their foothold into the league. Maybe they aren't like great fantasy players, but real yes, football, no they're they're guys who you could put on the field. Tremaine Pope is a guy that I remember seeing who was a futures guy for for a while and and got his start in that fashion. So I mean, certainly worthwhile. So you go ahead. What were you going to say? No, no, no. I was going to say it really is the the, the separation between well-run and it's not, and I don't mean it to say the other teams aren't well-run. Some teams are just so focused on right now yeah. that, and that's one of the things I give the Eagles credit for is people can say what they want. There's always, for whatever reason, it seems like every three or four years, there's crazy turnover in that building, but they constantly, because of Howie, and I think it's his sort of mantra for the building, they're always thinking two or three years ahead in terms of player development. And I think it's a very unique situation not many teams are always thinking that far ahead. And you think about how they sign veteran players earlier to longer-term extensions, 
how they look at guys like that. I don't even know how you say his name, Jordan Via, whatever his name yeah. is, their left tackle. This is a guy that was a late round pick, and they signed him to what was at the time people thought, wow, they're giving him a lot of money, and he hasn't even proven himself. And that was because they believed, hey, what we've seen, where he's going, we believe he's going to get there, even if he's not even a, a full-time starter yet. And then they lock in what could be the best tackle in the league at virtually pennies on the dollar. Yeah, and when you think about the Eagles, I mean, I want to. We're going to talk a little bit later about what teams do in terms of getting their their prospect list together. But before we do that, you know, you brought it up, so why not? Um, you know, Adam Adam Harstead, who works with me at Football Guys, and is really a fun mind to 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 explore when it comes to certain theories and ideas that are kind of out there, but they're rooted in, uh, you know some intellectual rigor he he you know he is definitely i i call him a ref, he would call himself the reformed smartest guy in the room you know type of thing like he he realizes that maybe if you're telling everybody you're the smartest guy in the room you're a jackass you know and he would say that <laughs> yeah. you know but he is one of the smarter guys in the room all the time and and so one of the things that he's always been a fan of and he said the theory kind of he jokingly burnt down Twitter when he would pose it years ago is the idea of why not take, if you don't have a quarterback, why not take multiple quarterbacks early and see, you know, what, what Washington did with cousins and Griffin, what the, what the Eagles did when they had Wentz and they picked, you know, Hertz in the second round, Jordan love, even though maybe how it was communicated might be some issue or maybe the way the, Aaron Rodgers received it might be the issue. The fact that they did these things, he's like, why not? Because if it's such an important position, why not continue to do that? And you can always get draft capital out of it if you if you wind up with two good players and you decide to pick one over the other and and it lasts that way and it works out. So what you know, do you agree with him on that that perspective that they should that teams should if they don't have a quarterback even if they do? They should continue to take shots on guys who have that high draft capital value. Well, well, I, I would say to me, it's not even always high draft capital. My philosophy, and I really believe this, and I think the Packers have done it pretty well. Not, not because everybody points to their first rounders, but they've also taken a lot of quarterbacks in the draft: Matt yeah. Flynn, Brian Brahma, guys like that, and the Patriots of all teams. People don't really give them the credit they deserve. Whether it's yeah. Ryan Mallett, Matt Castle, Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, and there's other ones too. That, yeah. that, that Hoyer kind of, and O'Connell right. and yep, yeah. exactly. I mean, guys that they took when they had Brady. And my philosophy has always been: it is hard if you look at teams like Jacksonville and Cleveland, who now, at least in Jacksonville, they think they have their guy. Cleveland, they're yeah. hoping Deshaun becomes what he was. How long were they chasing a quarterback? A decade. Yeah. So if you're a team, even if you have a starting quarterback, why wouldn't every year? You draft the quarterback, whether it's second or third round, if you have a guy that you think is dramatic, or a guy late that you think has one or two tools that's a maybe. And the other thing that I think ties in with this, and not teams have not done this, and this is where I think teams are a little backwards, I understand rosters are tight and everything, but if quarterback, to me, and it really is the only position you cannot win without, I can manipulate and scheme to win with a lesser offensive line, although that's hard, but you can – but I can scheme with lesser receivers, maybe less tight ends or running backs, whatever. But why wouldn't you say, no matter what, we're having three quarterbacks on the 53-man roster and we're having two on the practice? 
And why wouldn't you say, okay, here's our coaching staff. We have every team has 20 coaches now. You have an offensive coordinator, quarterback coach, all the positions, and you have a quality control. Why wouldn't you have a practice squad quarterback coach? Yeah. And, a, and make him maybe the best guy. Yeah, make him them. that sort of guy that teaches really well. And, and maybe as a way to sort of work around some of the rules that the NFL has in the union agreement with players in practice time, designate, hey, these two PR quarterbacks and the one active quarterback that's our third that normally runs scout team, along with the PR receivers and PR running backs, they're not going to be on the same field for half the practice. We're going to go on a separate field. And we're going to do fundamental teaching. And we're going to do stuff to develop as opposed to being practice dummies, which I, I'm not saying that's what they are in terms of sure. the grand scheme of things, but fourth and fifth stringers are basically bodies during practice. So to me, quarterback development, I mean, think about all the guys. Now, not all of them have become stars, but we talk about Jimmy Garoppolo, Ryan Mallett. I mean, these are guys that got capital. Teams were able to, the Patriots were able to trade them for valuable stuff. Matt Flynn, the, the Packers took Brian Brom in the second, Matt Flynn in the seventh in the same year, and they already had Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it so. totally makes sense, and I think that you know when it it to to me it's it's funny how you, you have to get over. I mean, it's funny how the public responds to these types of things because. The media and the public lose their minds. And you know, I look back on say Jordan Love, and and that, and the only thing that I would think is that, you know, maybe the, maybe there was a miscommunication between the Packers and Aaron Rodgers, where you have to understand your your star player a little bit, and maybe yeah. you know, oh, with yeah. a fifth round guy who's like contributing to your roster, maybe you don't have to tell him, feel like you have to tell him beforehand that this is what we're doing, but yeah. with Aaron. Rodgers, yeah, I would think you'd have to tell him. But other than that, if you have a shot, I mean, like, I wasn't a big fan of Jordan Love by any stretch of the imagination as a decision maker, his accuracy, all those things. But if you get a guy who has a top 10 phys physical traits to play that position, and the biggest thing wrong with him is that he needs intermittent playing time and experience to see if he's going to do the work to develop and get some proof to show that he that he can become wiser and more mature as a field general, why wouldn't you draft a kid like that in the first round if you don't need, if you're a team that you feel like you're a team that's like, listen, we, we want to have continuity and we feel like we have everything else or we can get everything else that we need and we can give him that intermittent playing time that, that he needs to clean up games, but... We're not going to lean on him. And to me, those that was the way that quarterbacks, from what I've seen over the years, did the best. I look back and I think if Terry Bradshaw was a prospect today and got drafted, he'd be much more Jordan Love than he would be, you know, oh, yeah. you know some of he these other guy, guys. Trevor Lawrence. Guy. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. And, and so, yeah, and he was someone that had intermittent, you know, he got benched intermittently. Drew Brees got benched intermittently. Aaron Rodgers spent a lot of time on the bench. You know, the maybe Rodgers was a different prospect than the you know than than some of the guys that I mentioned. But that that's an important area. And so if you if you have the luxury to develop them in the way that the NFL doesn't develop quarterbacks anymore that they draft in the first round, 
I, to me, I'd take that shot, especially if you know that your percentage of success goes way down after a certain period, after a certain round. Why not draft first, second round a, a guy if you are a good enough team that you feel like that this, you know, that you, this can pay off at least every every few years. I'm not saying like you, you have a formula for how what this is the year we're going to do it. It's more like you look at your scouting reports and look at the player and go, yeah. this looks like it matches up well. Yep. I mean, the the thought process to me was to say, if it's first, second, or third round, the guy's got to be exceptional for me to do that if I already have a quality starter. Yeah. But we get down really late third and on, every year I'm taking a guy. Yeah. Because almost every, I don't know, three drafts, somebody comes out of that day three group. They may not become a quality starter, but they at least become a real high-end backup. Yeah. And it's like, though even a high-end backup can often be good enough to get you out of a season. If your I starter mean, gets blown up. Nick Foles, Gardner Minshew's getting that opportunity this yep. year. I mean, Gardner Minshew, what he did as an undrafted free agent with the Jaguars. And then they were able to trade him, weren't they? So, yep. I mean. No, it's it's such a yeah. slam dunk. It's To me, it's, it's ridiculous that teams don't spend the time. And I just, like I said, I don't get why would he. I know rosters are tight, but just keep three on the 53-man roster. Yeah. And just your third – just don't keep him active on game day. Who cares? Yeah. He's not going to care. He's getting paid. And keep two on the PR. I, I think mean, it's a perfect chance to try to work with him and develop. I think it probably begins with, do you have a quarterback coach who was actually a quarterback or understands quarterback coaching on a level that's beyond game plan? And I think that if you find the right guy and there are certain, and if teams do that and find the right guys to do that, they'd probably be a little more confident in that. But I do wonder that if some of these guys, some of these teams, they're not as confident with that. I mean, we think about, I was just reading about Dan Campbell and about how, you know, we've talked about this in the past, about how a lot of position coaches didn't play the position, don't really know the position, but they're hired because they're they're good guys in terms of workers and they can learn. But, you know, I remember Dan, they're showing, ESPN wrote this great, profile on Campbell and how the Texas A&M tight ends coach it's like I was just learning the position and here I have this like former NFL starter coming in and wanting to learn how to coach and he spent the entire summer with me showing me what I need to know about the position in ways that I would have never known out of a book you know and that yeah. I think that's part of the thing is that maybe teams the way they view position coaches and the way they've used position coaches as game plan, you know, structural managers, task oriented guys, as opposed to teachers always, that that they they knew what to get in teachers and valued the idea of teachers, then it's a no brainer. If not, then that's where I think they, they miss the boat. Well, I think it really comes down to, and it's funny, I remember talking to a, a former NFL quarterback who's now a big media personality, and he would always joke, he would say, quarterback is the worst coach position in the NFL. And we and I asked him the first time he said that, I said, what's your reasoning? He said, it's real simple. He said, every coach in the NFL, except maybe five, has the ultimate goal of being a head coach. He said, well, to become a head coach, if you're an offensive coach and you coach quarterbacks, you don't get promoted and get a head coaching job because you're so good at teaching the fundamentals to a quarterback and making him 5% better. You get there because you game plan and you scheme. So he said the quarterback coaches are not focused all the time on 
oh, his foot is a little bit left to where it should be, or his ball placement or this. They're all worried about, hey, if we're running these plays, can we scheme this and can we scheme that? And he said a lot of the technical stuff gets forgotten. And I remember we started talking. I said, so to me, it sounds like if you're going to run a team, I said, it sounds like what you would do is you would say, I want my offensive coordinator to do the schemes, my quarterback coach, and an additional coach that coaches quarterbacks would be two maybe older retired coaches who are no longer caring about being head coaches, but that love teaching. Yeah. And they're going to get in there and deal with the fundamentals of the position, like bringing in a guy like Mike White, who's about 80 now. Yeah. And Mike has coached all of them from Jeff George throughout the whole litany, and he knows quarterbacks inside and out. How great would it be to have a guy like him who's not – you don't have to worry about him for game planning. He doesn't have to put in ridiculous hours like the rest of the coaches as part of game plan. His sole focus is to work with your second, third, fourth, and possibly fifth string quarterbacks on fundamentals, learning how to watch film, how to read the defense, all the different things that the coordinator doesn't and the quarterback coach don't have the time to do because mm-hmm. they're busy game plan. Yeah. But you don't see this. And I, and I get it. I understand that it's about winning now. But those teams that focus on winning now and winning in the future as opposed to just winning now, I think often have much better chance of long-term success like the Eagles. What they do even though they've had some ups and downs, they have pretty much been a winning team for about a decade now, even with their changes, because they're always looking towards the future. It's funny because you were talking, you gave a very specific example of like the idea of a quarterback and saying, well, you know, where he puts his foot and where it's turned, where his left foot's turned a little bit is an issue. And instantly I thought about a player I watched this weekend, Clayton Toon, the Houston quarterback, who's like 6'2", 230, and can move pretty well and he's not Josh Allen but I mean like there's some elements of what he can do on the move and and he has a these uh, a starter caliber arm or close to it um and you think one of the things that he doesn't do well is sometimes his foot goes in one direction that it shouldn't or doesn't move well and there's some little fundamental things to clean up and you think about a player like that who yeah he's going to the senior bowl but that means, you know, I've seen a lot of senior bowl quarterbacks who, you know, they're 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 picked to get showcased, but they're really guys that maybe scouts haven't had a good look at, you know, and because of their their program. And he could very well a lot well, of them are tools guys. Yeah, they're tools guys exactly. And he's he may qualify more as a tools guy, um, but he's a, he's a player with some intriguing tools. And and some and there's some, there's moments there that you look at him and think if he lands on the right team or he has the right approach to his development that he takes into his own hands, um, he could be a good player. Um, and and but he could also wind up in a situation where it's like he just gets lost in the shuffle, and then he's just kind of a career guy bouncing around from PR to PR, you know. Yep. And, you know, it's funny, and, and I'll take this in a sort of odd direction, but talking about sort of developing and stuff, I've always felt that as the NFL has expanded, they have, like we said, like 600 coaches on a team. Almost every team now has a special teams coach and an assistant special teams coach. Well, if I'm a team's GM, I am flat out telling my special teams coach that the assistant special teams coach has to be a former NFL long snapper because he is going to work with anybody over 230 pounds. They're going to spend every day 30 minutes snapping so we're going to develop two or three guys 
that are actual players, not just snappers, to learn to long snap. And if it takes four years for this program to start paying dividends, but we no longer have to keep a spot for a guy that only contributes, but can actually also be a backup linebacker. And to me, things like that, finding guys that have a special tool, the ability to teach the fundamentals of quarterback, the ability to teach a guy to long snap, those are roles that are extraordinarily valuable. You mean you're not and trying you're to gonna have plenty coaches anyway. You want to get rid of like the government jobs version of the NFL, you know? Yeah, exactly, where... right? <laughs> <laughs> because was it I mean, I think it was Rutgers Clark Harris, who was a tight yeah. end way back in two thousand six, who along with Brian Leonard, they were the stars of that team. Yeah. And yep. Clark Harris, I think, was a long snapper for like 15 years maybe like he was a good tight end for Rutgers and he was at Rutgers but he was not an NFL caliber tight end but he I think he made his living as a long snapper and just it was like yeah and hey I get it there it's a very specialized tool and you can't afford mistakes so you don't want a guy who's going to be okay you want a guy who's going to be perfection but hey if I have a guy for two years yeah. is a practice squad linebacker that's 250 and an athlete and then my backup special teams coach is a former snapper and will work with him on the fundamentals every day maybe i got a chance of developing a guy that's more than just a snapper who can go down and actually help in coverage and when it's not a punt or a field goal can actually play on the other special teams units yeah that makes total sense so let's 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 talk about how teams develop their prospects prospect list you know because we talked we touched on it last time a little bit about blesto um yep. you know and you know go through that process and how blesto is a part of these things and and just from eight soup to nuts what goes on you know and and the reason i brought this up is about 10 days ago i get a call from a small school coach that i've known for almost 20 years now who has a kid from a i think this kid was a d2 player who was tra- transferring down and this coach was trying to recruit him and the kid was nervous that he wasn't going to get looked at by the nfl so this coach called and said hey would you be willing to jump on a, a zoom or a conference call uh, like a speakerphone thing and just explain how the process works to the kid so he understands that every kid in the country if their coach at their school feels he's a legitimate nfl prospect they will get looked at and the reason that is is this time of year between the beginning of January and the, or beginning of December, end of December, my job as a, there are two companies, two independent companies, and I know I'm going in a roundabout way. It's here. All right. There's Blackfield Scouting and there's National Football Scout. Um, both are independent companies, but the scouts that work for them are actually employees of NFL teams. And what you do is, because Blesto is smaller, um, Blesto has about nine members. So every team that is a member of Blesto must supply a scout. National is bigger, so for national, and I don't have the numbers exactly, but national, you can pay a certain fee if you provide a scout. And I think that fee is like 200000 If you don't provide a scout, I think you got to pay 450000 to be a member. Blessed, though, you pay two fifty and you provide a scout. And what these scouts will do, like I said, between December 1st and the end of December, it used to be you would write letters. Nowadays, because of technology, you get on the phone to everybody. You call every school in your area except for the division one schools because you're going to have to go there anyway in the spring you call every school and say is there any player on your roster that is a junior that you feel has any chance 
not so much of making an NFL roster or being drafted, but any chance of being invited to try out for an NFL team a year from now. Just try out. You say, doesn't have to be a guy you think can make it, just a guy who can get into a trial. And if that coach says yes, whether it's Northern Iowa, which is a St. Francis, St. Francis, Graceland University, or, or Evangel University, any player where a coach says yes during that, when you call them in December, <clears throat> those Blesto scouts, and I can tell you, I my final year with the Browns, I had 11 states from Iowa all the way out to, all the way out to Wyoming and Montana. What I would do is I'd get, okay, I have a list. That year, I remember I had 76 schools that said I have a kid. Now, that given that's including Iowa, Iowa State, the big schools. So you take out those 12 or 13 big schools, it's another 65 schools. So I had to coordinate my schedule during the January to end of April time, work around all-star games, work around draft meetings, pro days, to go to all of these schools. And at these schools, I would measure every kid. Now, given there are some schools, mainly Division I powerhouses, that don't let you measure and time their kids in the spring. But in general, most of them do. I'd say 80% of them. You go there and you measure the kids. You time them in a 40. You have them fill out the questionnaire. Um, and you watch three, four, five games of film and assign them a grade. And you will either make them a draftable player. You'll give them a free agent grade. If a kid is a freak of nature tester, but his play is awful or he hasn't played, you can give him a what's called a height, weight, speed grade. If he is a guy that is injured, but has had good film, but you don't know if he's ever going to be healthy. You can give him an injured, needs to be looked at again grade. And then there's rejects. But even the rejects have all the measurements. So you put this whole list together. You submit it to whichever company you're affiliated with, Blesto. They combine that with all the other lists of all the other players that the other scouts that are members of Blesto. And that whole list gets combined into one giant list. And it's called the spring grades. And in June of every year, there are combine meetings. And what that combine, and it's a great chance, and this is how, as a young scout, you get exposure. They have a table, long table, with all the, the Blesto scouts, like 14 scouts, sit at this table. And in front of them are is a table for every team that's a member of Blesto, with their GM, usually the director of player personnel, and their director of college scouting at each table. And you, one by one, you read every report you wrote. And you don't read everything but you read summary, key points, measurables, and any character information you have. And then the teams have the opportunity to ask questions and find out about it. And this helps them set up their fall scout. Now, are there players that pop up out of nowhere 100%? or late transfers that there's a kid this year at a small school that transferred in in August. At his old school, they didn't view him as a prospect. He was a backup. At the new school, he's playing and he's a legitimate prospect. He's probably going to get drafted. But for all the players that slip through the cracks, this allows us to have a really good sort of baseline because for most players, even if they pop up late, because if I go to Northern Iowa or I go to Evangel, I don't just work out the one guy they think is a prospect. I tell the coach as a courtesy, hey, I'm going to put all the guys through it. Because this way you can publicize this. Because at those small schools, when I go in, I remember going to Evangel because they had a receiver that we ended up signing at the Browns named Demetrius Breedlove. 
big athletic kid. Didn't really stick. Made it for a year on injured reserve. But when I went there, I think they had 26 or 28 of their players show up that were seniors. And the next day after my visit, the front page of the school's website was NFL Scout works out 26 players. And there was a picture of me timing guys. Well, that's a recruiting tool. So you go there and you work out every kid. So occasionally you'll find a kid. You'll be like, wow, who is this kid that just popped up at, I don't know, like Texas San Antonio. And you look and you're like, oh, he transferred from Graceland late. But here's his workout numbers from Graceland in the spring. And you can go find him. So this list is invaluable because it helps you just have a baseline to start with. It tells you where just about every kid in the country is. It's and truthfully, for a scout, it's it teaches you how to scout because if you think about it, not that it's ever easy, whether it's media or working for a team, but in October, November, December of a player's final year, when everybody's talking about the best quarterbacks and the best running backs, it's easy to look at that kid and say, oh, I really like this kid. He's really good. Well, go back a year before when nobody in the media has even looked at these kids. You don't know if he's good or bad. You as a scout have to write them up and give a grade and present that grade to all these teams and get grilled on it. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. remember giving a grade to a kid who, you'll know this name, Robert Gallery, when he was yeah. thinking about coming out early. Yeah. And I gave him a low grade, and I caught a lot of... of I of remember that, grade. actually. The whole... I caught, yeah. Yeah, I caught a lot of heat, and he went second. Yes. And he turned out to be an okay player, but I did not think he would be more than an average starter. I thought he was going to be an average at best, day three, third to fifth round type guy. But I caught heat yeah. because I said he is not a first round guy under any circumstances. Yeah. So it forces you, and it's not that you're going to always be right or always be wrong, but it forces you as a young scout to have the courage to, hey, I was at a small school. I like this kid. I'm putting him on the list. And it, and it helps you to build confidence as a scout. And it really, I think it's an invaluable tool for the NFL. I think it's uh, that list, to have that going into the year is huge. That makes total sense. So I kind of have an offshoot of follow-up question with this. Okay. So, so what advice would you give a player at a small school? So I, I'll give you a good example. Sure. Yesterday, I was at the grocery store. And this norm, this type of thing normally, I know, never really happens. It's the only time it's ever really happened. So at the grocery store, I was buying some steaks for my wife because she wants to cook some steaks on um, Christmas and, and maybe burn down our house because, you know, every time <laughs> she's at the kitchen, the smoke alarms go off because I'm the one that cooks in our house, all right? So the joke is pray for me when my wife cooks because she builds stuff. She doesn't cook stuff. <laughs> and when I first met her grandfather, he met me at the carport and said, you know she can't cook, right? Because, you know, he's, he's an old school <laughs> sawmill worker from like way back in the day. Um, so we laughed about that, but anyway, the guy who was at the meat counter, he was an Eagles fan and we were talking and, and joking around and all that and talking about football. And he said, my son's a, a football player. And I said, Oh really? I said, where does he play? And he goes, he plays at St. Francis. He's a wide receiver. So he said, he's trying, he said, do you know? And, and. And I said, Is well, I, this year? I said, he's a junior. I think he's a junior, a redshirt junior. Okay. So, so he, and I said, um, we got to talk and I told him a little bit about what I do and he goes, do you know an agent? And I said, well, I do who, who might fit with this. I said, so tell me about your son. 
And he said, well, he hasn't started the entire time he's been at St. Francis. Okay. But he, you know, he does run below a 4.5. He's in the 4.4 range. He is their return specialist. He's averages about 23 yards a kick, um, 23, 23 and a half. They wouldn't allow him to run track, according to him, which you just don't, you know, again, I, you know, if you're listening. You take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah, my man, if you're listening and and that's true, that's great, but I have to take things with a grain of salt until we know how this goes, you know. But because we hear people all the time, especially parents, talking up their kid and, and, you, you know, we've all been parents. We take our kid's side on everything regardless. But, you know, seems to be a good kid. He actually played around here and, and, you know, and was a, you know, pretty good at what he did. Um, But for someone who, you know, we've seen exceptions to the rule where guys who ride the bench their entire career, Willie Parker, Priest Holmes for much of his career, Terrell Davis kind of getting what, you know, to one extent, not his whole career, but, you know, at a major school. Yeah. You know, if you're a guy like that and you think I, I have, I think I have pro skills and maybe you're right, but it, for whatever confluence of situations, what, what is your best shot? If you're stuck, if you actually are stuck behind a roster spot, you know, where you're not doing stuff to get a shot to maybe get a tryout or do the things that you're doing. How do you maximize that? Firstly, he needs to find out, my guess is his coach is probably not going to recommend him as their prospect. Yeah. Um, but he does need to find out, hey, is there anybody on my team the coach is going to recommend as a prospect? Because if there is, then there is going to be a scout coming through to work guys out. He needs to be there that day to run for. Um, secondly, if the school is going to have a pro day because they have a legitimate prospect, like uh, I don't remember what school it was, but I'm sure you graded this kid, the tight end Adam Sheehan, I think, a few years back. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I think he was out of like Akron or some small school or whatever, yeah. or Ali yeah. Marpet came out of Marist. Those schools end up having a pro day because all the scouts want to see him. Well, you go work out at that. Um, the other thing he can do, and is St. Francis is in Georgia? No, I think it's in Philly. Oh, in Philly. Or well, one thing there. he can do, well, two things he can do. He can reach out to any school really within the state that he goes to college in and see if that school will allow him to attend their pro day. Now, a lot of schools do not, but there are schools like Northwestern here, which is the best in the country at it. Any kid that goes to school in the state of Illinois or grew up in Illinois and now plays college football somewhere else that is a senior on Northwestern's pro day, their pro day for Northwestern players starts at 11 at seven in the morning. They have a pro day measuring, timing, working out for all these locals. And so you that's can just show it, up and sign up for that. Well, well, you have to reach out ahead of time. Yeah. And those schools, if they're a school that does it. Now, a lot of schools don't like um, Georgia. I don't think Georgia does that. I don't. Uh, I think Alabama actually does now that I think about it. Because on the pro day results, you can always see, oh, this kid worked out at Alabama. He's from West Alabama this kid from South. So some of the big schools do. If not, the other option is also the kid can reach out to any school within 50 miles of his hometown where he grew up and went to high school. If there are any schools there that he can work out at. 
those are the two ways and like pro day ways you can get in. If those don't work, or if this kid is a, you said he's a redshirt junior and he's already discussing this and he doesn't want to stay for his senior year. The other option he has going to one of these independent workouts. Um, there's the one that the guy named Jimmy Kibble runs that goes on every year, normally in February, this year in January. Um, they charge these kids. They charge them anywhere from two to 500 bucks to attend. But there's a scout there. Usually it's me because I have relationships with these people. Because the biggest thing you want to get if you're a kid like this is it's great to have your dad say you run this or your college coach. NFL teams do not view any 40 times, even if they're timed by CFL scouts or USFL scouts. If you are not NFL or former NFL, they do not view that 40 time as worth anything. Most scouts, because they don't know how you were trained. So these events where I go, and a perfect example is last year, I went to this event in February in Indianapolis, and a linebacker showed up who was a quarterback in high school, was going to go to Northern Illinois on a full scholarship as a quarterback. And at the last minute, literally the day of, Iowa offered him a chance to come there on scholarship as a linebacker. Never played linebacker. So he went there. After a year, he realized, hey, I'm 67 deep on the depth chart. I'm never going to play as a linebacker. He transferred to a tiny school called Grandview, which is in Iowa, and was a backup linebacker for a year and then started his final three years. He's a freak. Now, he has no idea what he's doing because he's still learning the position. But I worked him out. He was 6011-237. He ran a 450 flat and a 451. And a vertical like 37 and a half. So literally after the workout, after I reached out to my team, the Alouettes, um, and tried to get us to sign them and they didn't want to, all the results were sent to NFL teams and they know that I did it. I must have gotten 25 emails and texts wanting to know about this kid. The kid ended up signing with the Patriots. Now, he didn't make the team. He got cut. But he's also since had workouts with the Raiders. And so the key is these independent workouts are really valuable. Um, Additionally, I will say the CFL tryouts are valuable because you at least get times. And even though the NFL will, they don't love non-NFL times, at a CFL tryout, they do know that they are legitimately at least being timed. It's, it's, It's not for show. It's not that CFL teams are trying to, like, they're trying to find guys. Yeah. So if you go to a CFL workout and you have legitimate times, you can use that. If it's from the team, if you can show them, hey, these are the times the team had on me, that will help. Those are probably your two best ways to get noticed um, in terms of getting a workout. Because if you're not playing other than kickoff returns, you have to get someone to time you. So the other option is finding a local former NFL scout that lives near you that you can pay him to put you through a timed workout. And if it's a former NFL guy and he times you and it's good, NFL teams will at least see that number and respect it. So let's move on with our last topic, and that's Tyler Algier and really kind of a broader question. Because when I watched Tyler Algier this week, um, you know, against New Orleans, he had, you know, well over 100 yards, nearly, I think, nearly 140 yards in that game. And, you know, he's a really strong runner. He's a guy who really attacks downhill well. He breaks tackles. He gets a good push. He's going to drag guys. He can catch the ball. But at the same time, when I studied him, what was kind of fascinating as a, you know, from a college perspective is that I know that, you know, there are guys who were higher on him than me. But, 
I didn't think he was much of a zone runner. I thought he was more of a gap runner who, in Atlanta, that's exactly what he does. So he's a good fit there. But maybe long term, if you were studying him versus other running backs, you'd say he's kind of specialized towards, you know, one set of blocking schemes. And um, before the season started, most teams we saw were running zone, you know, for years. So while he ran outside zone at BYU, I thought he does not track pursuit really well. Like, I don't think he has a really good tracking, you know, eyes for tracking pursuit, both as a pass blocker or as a runner with pursuit coming at him and knowing when to cut or when to, you know, when to commit. But when you, and I thought maybe he'd be better off as a gap runner, but I don't know many teams that use gap runners who don't have elite speed um, this day and age. Well, that combined with the, the way defenses changed, how they played spread <clears throat> offenses, now the, the, the offensive countered by we're running a lot of gap because it, it fits for what we do. Our offensive line's quick enough to be able to do this type of work. So it doesn't matter whether the running back is a speedster or not. If he's a hard runner, then it works. So it, it's perfectly working out for Tyler Algier. But my, my question I wanted to ask you is, you know, do you think in light of how teams are, defenses are still playing, you know, these offenses with two high shells, do you think now that's going to change how teams scout running backs a bit to the idea of going, well, a Tyler Algier is going to work well enough that maybe he, we, there's some guys, if we really like them and they fit our scheme, we may draft them a little earlier than we, than we would maybe in previous years, because now we know we're running a lot more gap. Do you think teams are going to continue to, I guess, one, run more gap schemes and two, does that really even change the value of running back? Or are they just going to think, well, now we just get them at a discount more and they're going to be more valuable to us at that discount? Well, firstly, the discount part, I think, is still going to hold true. But I, I think the bigger issue, at least in my eyes, is because think about it. Chubb, um, Taylor, well, the other kid, uh, Taylor and the other kid from uh, Kareem Hunt. Yeah. I mean, none of them are blazers. No especially Chubb and Hunt. I mean, these are four, six guys. Um, well, Chubb's, Chubb's faster than that. Oh, did he run faster than oh, that? Oh, yeah. He was he was two-tenths of a second fa um, slower than um, Saquon Barkley. So he can uh, move. Okay, so he was like mid-four-fives. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but I will say, I think it's part of it is going to be, I think teams, there are certain teams that are just, no matter what, they, 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 they look at the numbers. Whereas certain teams, and I think Atlanta's, showing this and I think teams maybe that look at the way the NFL is trending and realize that you're not going to have full boxes as long as teams are going to play the two shell because you not because I think what people don't realize is when you say a team is playing a two shell it's not like the old days where two shell and two corners and the rest of the team is in the box nowadays it's two shell three corners yeah. potentially four so when you're keeping both safeties back it makes it gives a huge opportunity running the ball. So I think teams that are smart are going to realize, hey, we'll trade a little bit of explosiveness and top-end speed to get a guy who can really function running the ball in this day and age. But I do think, like you said, the value of it, you're not going to have to use a high pick on these guys. 
And I think it's going to create debates because there are going to be some outstanding running backs. I shouldn't say outstanding. That's probably overstating it. But there's going to be players that become very productive, good running backs in the NFL, like this kid we're talking about with Atlanta, Algiers, if I'm saying that correctly, yeah. um, that you don't spend much draft capital on. You never end up paying much money because as soon as he's done, you bring in the next guy. So it's almost going to devalue the position more, I think, yeah. than where it is now. Because in the old days, you're right. It's like if I'm running a gap scheme, I want guys who when they see that gap, they explode through it. But now it's more of, hey, if I can get a guy that's 225, 235 that's physical, even if he's not explosive to where he can run by people, if he gets a run and start with his size and competitiveness, he's still going to get me good yards after contact. So yeah. do I need to waste a high pick on a 4-4 guy or 4-3 running back where in the fifth, sixth round I can get a really good player that runs in the four sixes that probably fits what I need well and maybe runs in the four fives. Imagine if you're, you know, think of Tyler Algier as maybe maybe Jordan Howard in terms of like Jordan Howard when yep. Howard was in his prime. And then when the guy wears down and wears out a little bit, you – you plug the next guy in who's in that range. So that makes total sense on the on Yeah, that it, it unfortunately devalues the position more. It does. For a position that I think really does have value. Yeah. It's just it's a different type of value than drafting or paying. It's yeah. just a value on game day. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, so and especially if you can especially if you can either pass block or catch. If you're you know, preferably both, but if you can do yeah. at least if you can run hard inside and you can catch um, your value, you know, if yep. you can run hard and you can block your value. So it's, you know, at least at that range, because now you're willing to live with the idea of, you know, I, I may not get all three things I want out of this guy, you know, on the broad range, but I can get two out of the three at a lower cost. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, there's no doubt. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing you would think, because we've talked about it a few times this year, that as the defenses have adjusted so much to the pass and teams are running more than they have in basically a decade, that the value would increase. Yeah. But it really is actually going the opposite direction. And I think part of it is that I think the more things like this happen, where players like Algiers in today's NFL prove they can be successful and help an NFL offense, Teams further learn, hey, we don't have to use the second pick overall on a Saquon Barkley or whatever pick it was that got McCaffrey. Yeah. We can use a late round pick on Algiers or a no pick on, on Jordan uh, Mason or yeah. Jordan Mason. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's a different world we live in. And I do think analytics and you know me, I believe in analytics very strongly. I think it's going to even prove this point further. Because I think you're going to see, especially their ability to analyze yards after contact, I think they're going to realize yards after contact in certain offensive schemes that it's almost no core, that there'll be no difference with your testing numbers to how well you gain yards after contact. A lot of it's going to come down to size and strength as opposed to explosiveness and speed. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Well, listen, this was just another great episode. You know, it's always a lot of fun to be able to do this. And, you know, you can find Russ Landy at Russ Landy. Um, on Twitter, you can find me at Matt Waldman. Of course, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio is available for pre-order. There is a pre-order discount available through tomorrow. 
So if, um, if you want to get it for 1995, it's available um, at that time until the 22nd at mattwaldman.com. And if you know if you're one of those old timers who who orders and you're like, no nah, man, I'm paying full price because this thing's already at a discount. You can get it at 21.95 afterwards, and it's much appreciated if you wait. Um, but at the same time, if you've been on the fence and you've been wondering about it, um, give it a shot at 19.95. You'll be paying. You'll be like a lot of them going, nah, I'll pay the extra couple bucks because it's worth it. And I'll just say, if you're on the fence, get off the fence. Trust me, if you want to see football the way scouts look at players, there's no better thing you can buy. Because while there are a lot of draft guides that are written up, and there's some very good ones that are done. Yeah, sure. Nobody gets to see the process. And that, to me, is, I think, the biggest thing that Matt offers to anybody, besides the fact that I love Matt and I think he's brilliant beyond belief, the ability for an outsider to see the process of evaluation that scouts go through is rare. And that's what, to me, aside from the fact that Matt's going to give you an advantage in your fantasy league and all that stuff, put all that aside, just the fact if you want to start to really understand how players are evaluated, the time it takes, the detail and the amount of energy you have to put into every player. Look at RSP and look at the stuff in there. You will you will not regret it. And I also got to throw out there, Matt, I had another friend reach out this week saying, hey, you know, I had no idea you did this, but I've been a fan of Matt's for a long time. And I saw he was doing a podcast. I listened and it was you and him. And he goes, man, he goes, I'm listening to all of them now. He goes, I'm going to find every one you guys have ever done together. That's I awesome. I love your podcast. So. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's... It's been great, Russ, because you know I've learned a lot from you over the years, getting the chance to to watch and observe and talk with you about the game, and it's been you know the RSP has been an ongoing process. You know, it's a it's built to be a con, you know a process built on continuous improvement, and you know getting a chance to interact with you and to learn about the game and learn perspective and bounce thing off, and you to to look at things and say, hey. You know, this is what goes on behind the scenes that you may not know. These are some yep. things that, that are valuable of what you're looking at. Or I haven't looked at it this way, but this is how we've looked at it. This is how I've looked at it, you know, or, you know, has been incredible perspective to be able to add to, to what I do when I write up a chapter about a position and to be able to say, you know, even if it's something where I go, even if it's something to the expect of saying, this is how the NFL looks at this. You know, this is how this is how the idealist media person might look at this, you know, and want it to be. This is how it actually is. Um, this is maybe where it's heading. You know, there's yep. there's it gives you that kind of perspective. And that's valuable as a reader when you can understand the game and say, I really like this guy. I like how this is. I want to root for him. But if I'm going to make a cold, hard decision on what's really exactly. going to be the best thing to do well then i've got to root it in these things and then hope that that thing that i i'm hoping that i want to actually happen does but if i'm exactly. going to be you know if i'm going to go by the if i'm going to go by the numbers or go by you know go by the rules here you kind of get an understanding of both and i think that's a valuable thing is that you want to be able to look at things in multiple perspectives and then still have a final decision and that's a lot of what scouts do. Um, that's a lot of what the RSP does. So you can check it out at mattwaldman.com. And of course, a percentage of the sales, or not a percentage anymore, but a, a certain amount of the sales up to about $5,000 
goes to um, Darkness to Light, an organization devoted to preventing sexual abuse of children um, through educational programs. They've worked with Penn State, with Michigan State. They they work with a variety of you know government organizations, companies, individuals. However, you want to look at it, um, and it is. Um, a great group at detail.org. The RSP has donated over $55,000 since 2012 to this organization. And they're very appreciative of the fact that, you know, we have the readers that we do who find this to be a good cause and, you know, enjoy the work that I put out, but also know that, you know, you help me be able to donate this to an organization that's just, you know, does great work for our, our society. Well, on that note, hope you guys have a wonderful holiday and take care.